Listen to me. You know what happens if they get in now? They'll kill us all. They've gone too far to back down now. You understand that? We're dead if they get in. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's Straw Dogs Retrospective Series. If they want to kill us, they have to kill us. If they get in this house, we're dead. Hosted by Arnie. It's real good to have you back. Stuart. He's all right. I like him. And Jacob. Do you fancy him? He's sweet, I think. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Fuck, man! You're right about that. Who's next? We hope you enjoy the show. Come on, come on, let's go. Come on. The police will be here soon. Today we're discussing Straw Dogs, starring Dustin Hoffman, Susan George, directed by Sam Peckinpah. This is the Now Playing co-host who always counts jump rope in binary, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, the co-host who feels closer to rats than people. <laughs> These days, rats are cleaner. <laughs> yeah, they ain't spreading no plague. <laughs> They're looking at us and laughing. <laughs> So, welcome to Straw Dogs, because that is tying into our current reviews house. Stuart, why are we reviewing a 1971 Sam Peckinpah film? Well, for one, it's the 50th anniversary. Anniversaries are nice to celebrate. This is the movie that invented, or at least co-invented, the home invasion films. Maybe you could argue Clockwork Orange and Last House on the Left came out the same year, contributed as well. All of those films, you know, they have a certain element about someone trying to get into your house and then something happening to you that makes you kind of enjoy the sadism and giving it back. But this is the one that really focuses on the house, the break-in, and sets what I would argue the blueprint for uh, yeah, a genre that I really love. Home invasion movies are some of the scariest to me, maybe in part because we've all been spending too much time at home the last two years, but also because I briefly was a victim of a home invasion about 20 years ago when I was living in a small Chicago apartment. I always locked my front door, but the back led down to the laundry room. I figured, eh, it's closed. What's the big deal? I was home. I was reading. I was enjoying life, and I'll never forget the sound. The doorknob turned. It opened. Someone was coming in with a wrench. I saw them three seconds before they saw me. Did you grab your bear trap? I Well, that was it. That's, I think, every time I watch one of these movies, I'm like, what would have happened if he had rushed me? Like, fortunately, I didn't have to do no wrench, no craziness. All I did was scream and that was enough the man turned and ran turns out homeless people had broken in and were living in my laundry room in the basement <laughs> so the cops cleaned them up but yeah i always think about that moment whenever i'm watching you know any of these things we've covered purge now panic room high tension assault on precinct 13 there's always an element that i can draw from my own life it's why it's the scariest because it's also the most real genre and because I love that genre, we needed something for silver level fall donation. We are covering the latest, we'll use the word classics, in the home invasion genre. The, the films of the last 15 years that have gotten the most acclaim, the most buzz, maybe the most blood. We're kicking that off this 
Friday with Don't Breathe, followed by the sequel next week. It just seemed uh, nice to have a bookend where we're starting with the beginning here before leaping to where the genre is in 2021. And I've seen this movie once before with you, Stuart. I know this is a movie you've loved and you... During one of our movie watching times where we're each picking something, I think I might have picked Hellraiser 7 and you picked Straw Dogs. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a double feature. I don't have any memory of that. I don't have any. I remember Hellraiser 7. I remember always watching Hellraiser or Clyde Barker with you, but I don't necessarily remember sharing it, Straw Dogs with you. Did you like it? I remember thinking it was okay, but not being nearly as hot on it as you were. So... I hadn't come back. You know, I had thought about it because that was in, I think, the 90s we watched it. And I thought about going back because, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And then the reboot came out. And so I'm like, I'll watch the reboot and remember the first one. And so I've seen each of these once before this review. I've never seen that remake. I've seen this one once. Uh, sometime between, I don't know, time has no meaning anymore, between now and college, which to me is a couple of years, but it's much more than that is probably 15 years ago. I actually saw this, but this is like, you know, it's like Schindler's List. It's like Requiem for a Dream. Good films. I don't want to see them a lot, though. They're hard films to watch. And that is my memory of this 1971 Straw Dogs is great film. Never want to see it again because it's so hard to watch. <laughs> How funny, because this is actually a tradition in my life. Wow. Whenever I move into a new place... And I've done it now five or six times. This is how you christen your new home? I absolutely will christen my new home with a watching of Straw Dogs. I guess that's morbid. Maybe I still got PTSD, but I do like to think about all the ways they could get in. And again, this to me is the granddaddy of them all. Maybe the best. I don't know. That was my curiosity coming back to this. Is Straw Dogs just the originator, or is it still the master of the genre? I don't know. It had been a while since I've moved. It's over four years, so it's been a while since I've seen this movie, and I have never seen the remake. So, an opportunity there. But do want to put out there, uh, trigger warning for those that maybe don't know what they're getting into. This movie is notorious and for many years was banned from home video in the UK because it has a really nasty, icky rape. I'm guessing, Jacob, that's part of the reason why you don't like to return. Yeah, it is the hardest rape that I've ever seen in a film, like to watch, like even though it's not that graphic, we'll talk about it. But like there's something so real about it. It just do not feel good afterwards seeing it harder than. Last House on the Left? Yes, yes, because that is kind of goofy with the, the cops and everything. Like, this never has that kind of levity, that that goofiness that was brought into that film. Yeah, this one is the one that set the standard. I don't know if that's a great standard to set, but yes, this is the hardest one for me to watch. Yeah, and same year as that. Again, and Clockwork Orange. It was a time when the MPA was being a little bit liberal. They, they felt like, okay, we're going to let filmmakers show screen violence in more realistic ways. Maybe people will come to the movies again. And so consequently, we had all of these movies coming out in 1970, 1971. We talked about it when we covered Dirty Harry. This was a Christmas film. Dirty Harry, Straw Dogs, and Clockwork Orange were what you could go see Christmas 1971. Bring Grandma and the kids. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Nixon is president. We're killing people in Vietnam. And these are your Christmas movies. Yeah. 
Now, I've got to ask, how familiar are you guys? You've all seen Straw Dogs, but how well do you know its creator? Because oftentimes, this is the movie that's held up as the greatest film in the canon of writer-director Sam Peckinpah. The only other film of his I've seen, and I think he's more associated with Westerns, is The Wild Bunch. But yeah, Mm -hmm. Wild Bunch and this are the only films of his that I've actually watched. I more know of him than know his films. He's got one of those names that always comes up in conversation, usually because of The Wild Bunch. It's so fun to say, Peckinpah. The only film of his I've seen other than Straw Dogs is The Getaway, which I saw when the remake came out in the 90s, and I was really like, what did they remake? And I went back and saw the original, and I don't remember much about it at all, but those are the only two films of his that I've seen. Yeah, I'm kind of a newbie as well. Sam Peckinpah has this amazing reputation, but most of it is in the Western genre, and until recently, the Western genre wasn't one I was eager to explore. Now I actually kind of won want to go and dig up his old films. I, of course, have seen Wild Bunch. If you see a Western made in the 1960s, it's either going to be that one or Butch Cassidy. I I feel like those are the two. And what Peckinpah is specifically most famous for is screen violence, that he really, he's a macho director, a man's man director. He's always, his films are always about men in the harsh climates of the Wild West. Uh, Straw Dogs is kind of a departure. It's his sixth film and his first outside of the Western genre. But he grew up in a pioneer family. It should be said he comes to it naturally. His whole family, like, when they moved across the West, they got a mountain named after them in California and a river. There's a Peckinpah Mountain. They were, like, lumberjacks and and people that really helped create the West that we knew. And so he comes to this genre with love, but with a love for the grit of it. And he was... In the 60s, one of the people that helped transform that decade from safe sound studio, comforting visions into really provocative, violent, boundary-pushing works of art. Wild Bunch had come out a few years before, and then Straw Dogs is considered his most shocking, his most violent film. And he didn't necessarily want to direct this movie. It's worth pointing out that if he had had his way, it had been offered to him by the author, he was going to make Deliverance. Kind of another, it's not a home invasion movie, but it has a similar quality of hillbillies are going to get you. Yeah, that squealing like a pig would have been much more graphic, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I was definitely thinking Deliverance with this film. Yeah. Yeah, a, a film we probably should cover just to complete it all. We've done Clockwork, we've done Last House, we've done Straw Dogs. Deliverance would come out early the next year, sort of completes a, a theme. He was lined up for that one, but the problem was he was in the outhouse with Hollywood. He had made a really expensive Western called Ballad of Cable Hogue, and it, apparently it wasn't violent. It was his first time that he tried to do something more lyrical, more gentle, and guess what? Nobody wanted to see that. It flopped, and he was way over budget and he couldn't get a gig so he had to go hat in hand and find something he wound up in england someone handed him this source novel the siege of trencher's farm and he said well it's shit but i gotta eat so (laughs) i guess i'll make it i'm assuming you guys haven't read the book i haven't until this viewing no, I didn't even know this was based on one. I saw that in the credits, and I just assumed, Stuart, you were reading it since you're the fan <laughs> of the film. <laughs> yes, I, but I, it wasn't one I had ever sought out before. You know, I was just like, I was happy never to read it because to me, Straw Dogs is a movie. I don't need to, to read about it. But I did dig up this 1969 novel, and it is much closer to Deliverance 
maybe closer to Michael Myers. Like, it's sort of like this movie, but largely not. It's set in England, and there's a whole big prologue about how this is a, a land where modern thinking and modern technology hasn't really reached. Everyone is still kind of primitive. And you have an American, this time he's an English professor. He's named George Magruder in this novel. He has a wife, and they have an eight-year-old daughter. And they go there because he's researching this diary about uh, rural English life that makes it seem so enchanting and fun. And so they think they're going on holiday. They wind up at this place at Christmas and there is a snowstorm that makes a ambulance turnover and a child murderer goes free. And he's like out there stalking in the snowy Iceland and George accidentally runs them over with his car, not realizing his reputation, brings them into his house, threatens his daughter, you know, all the tension there. Meanwhile, the town can't find a developmentally disabled girl. She's gone missing. They naturally assume that this man has found her and they form a lynch mob that kind of does what this movie does. Yeah, I, I could see the pieces coming together in this one from that. Yeah, you, you kind of get it. But again, it was much more of it came from the idea that it was written really quickly by a guy who was just like, you know, I'm out here all alone in the farm. And what if there was an axe murderer? And what would I do? And so it does have kind of almost a slasher movie quality. Peckinpah did not want to do that. First of all, that genre didn't exist yet. But Peckinpah wanted to make a statement. He felt like this should be about something. So he was very public about saying Gordon Williams' novel was crap, but he was willing to bring in new ideas. He's a big fan of the social biologist Robert Ardery, who I didn't know, but apparently his whole big thesis is we're all apes. That basically man is savage and violent by nature. We have to accept that, learn to live with it, and control it if we hope to survive. But a very different tack than you know, say Clockwork Orange, which argues that environment shapes character, that you can make a, a killer a pacifist depending on how you condition him. This is the counter-argument. No matter what you try to do to civilize, in the end, we're all animals and we all want to kill each other. Dustin Hoffman was not the original choice. Uh, want to take a guess? Who was the biggest actor of the 70s? Clint Eastwood? Nicholson? Yeah, Nicholson, right? Makes sense. I mean, a, a decade before The Shining, seeing him go crazy trying to defend his family. <laughs> Could have been fun. They wanted to get big stars. They actually wanted to get Robert Shaw, who we know from Jaws. And, you know, they really, they had a, a big celebrity ideas to this, but then the money just wasn't there. And Peck and Paul, again, uh, came with a lot of controversy. He was known to being, well, very, very difficult to work with is sort of the nice way of putting it. Yeah, that's what I've read. <laughs> a drunk who uh, harasses particularly his actresses, is probably more likely. And this set was absolute chaos. They were lucky to get the $2 million budget that they did. And the whole time, it seemed like everyone was trying to have everyone else fired. Dustin Hoffman came on. <laughs> he tried to fire Peckinpah. He tried to fire the actress, Susan George. He had all these ideas about what it should be. Well, where was Hoffman at this point in his career? 71 feels like it, it was just starting. Well, I know The Graduate was the 60s, right? So that would be probably what he's known for. 67 was the 
The Graduate, and from that time, he had been Oscar-nominated several times. Midnight Cowboy, Little Big Man. He was a big star. He's 34 years old, and he had made the leap from theater, and it was a big proponent of, of method acting. You know, he was the inheritor of Brando, and to some respect, and that was part of the clash on this set, was like, he wanted to understand everything, and what's my motivation? And Peckinpah is like, your paycheck, get in there and do it, and <laughs> shut up. And he was even worse to Susan George, who is 20 years old and hadn't really worked much. And it, you know, in reading these stories behind the scenes, it really reminded me of those awful things you hear about Shelley Duvall and Kubrick on The Shining set. Like, she was tortured. She pretty much had an awful time. And if it looks like this rape is real, it's because, I'm not going to say she was raped by Peck and Paul, but she certainly was brought to the brink and quit many times. Talks about it being the most painful experience of her entire life but also one where she's proud of the work. After the fact, once she could get away, restraining orders, she actually thinks that Straw Dogs is the jewel in her crown. Not Enter the Ninja from 1981? <laughs> That's the other film I know her from. Yeah, yeah, not quite as quite as good as that, but almost, yeah. I, but again, a difficult film to make. They shot it in February 1971 on location. Very cold, very unpleasant. Lots of drinking, lots of fighting. But when it finally comes out, a split decision. UK is offended. I think that they did not like the idea that they were presented to savages and all the reviews were pretty bad. Yeah, it had nothing to do with the rape or the violence, right? It was just how the UK is portrayed in the film. Well, some of the people will say that on on the commentary tracks and what have you. They're like, if this were set in Mexico, the UK audience would have loved this. But because it was personal, because it said that they were the hicks and they were the monsters, it didn't play well in England. And like I said, consequently, it got banned from home viewing. It wasn't on VHS, wasn't on Laserdisc, did not show up. It's funny you say that because the movie that also kept coming to mind with this when I was watching it this time is another 1971 film that's in our book, Wake in Fright, which is mm-hmm. a similar story, but taking place in Australia, the Yabba. And the Australians didn't like how they were portrayed in that film. I don't think anyone would find it flattering. Like, hopefully you can realize that the movie's not using so broad a brush that it's saying all of you are like this. But just the idea of accepting that this is inside you, I'm going to make the argument that's the point of this movie. Ultimately, this movie is asking you to understand that there's a savage in you, that you are capable of some of this awful behavior as well. That may be difficult for certainly not an entertaining notion at Christmas for audiences to embrace. Have you met my family? (laughs) (laughs) I have. I have. But they probably wouldn't accept that label. It might apply, but they wouldn't accept it. When it came to America, though, the critics tended to be much more complimentary. Words like masterpiece were used. But there was a segment particularly that was offended. The controversy remained about how the rape was portrayed. And it should be said, in America, it was a different cut. In order to get the R, they did change the rape scene so that it doesn't come off the way that it does in the uncut version. Which version did you guys see? Do you know? I watched whatever version the Criterion company put out. I I have that on Blu-ray and that's what I watched. (laughs) Me too. I found it on Criterion for rental. Okay. I believe you guys saw uncut and the way to know for sure is during the rape, if Norman comes in, did he bugger her? If it's clear that he came in through the rear, 
then it's uncut. Okay. It was uncut. Yes, I saw the uncut then. <laughs> yes. I just thought he went doggy style. I didn't know. No, it, it seemed like a good old-fashioned sodomy. Yeah. Well, actually, Peckinpah argues that it was just uh, entry through the rear, but however you want to categorize it, if you're even aware that that's happening, you are watching the X-rated, unrated cut. All in all, about five minutes of difference. Things get extended. Unpleasantness keeps going on in the unrated cut. But overall, no real different scenes. Uh, You're going to get the same movie, more or less, in either version. So, Arnie, give him that plot. Mathematician David Sumner, played by Dustin Hoffman, is researching stellar radiation. To focus on his work, David and his much younger Cornish wife, Amy, retreat to the southwest English town where she grew up. They stay in the abandoned house once owned by Amy's father. Alone in the house, Amy and David get into several heated arguments. David isn't getting along much better with the countryside locals who look down on the erudite, secular college professor and his nebbish demeanor. The townies are also a bit jealous of David's hot wife. Especially jealous is Charlie Venner, Amy's high school boyfriend. It doesn't help that Charlie's at their house every day. David hired Charlie to fix the garage roof. Charlie's doing the job with his rough-and-tumble friends, Scut and Cossey, and Charlie's cousin, Bobby. The more David tries to show he's one of the boys, like buying the group a round of drinks at the local pub, the more he's mocked. Someone even kills David's cat and hangs it in his bedroom closet. In fact, it seems the only person in town more hated than David is Henry Niles, a mentally challenged townie with a history of violence towards women. One afternoon, Charlie and his crew invite David hunting. With David in the wilderness, Charlie goes back to David's house and fucks Amy. Scut then comes in and rapes Amy. When David gets home, Amy doesn't tell him of the sexual assault, but insists David fire the crew so they no longer come around. A few days later, while driving home in thick fog, David hits Henry Niles with their car. David takes the mentally challenged man back to their house to wait for medical help. The doctors don't come. Instead comes Charlie and his crew, along with Charlie's uncle Tom, the local drunk. David didn't know Niles had just accidentally killed Tom's young, flirtatious daughter Janice. Now Tom and the others have come to kill Niles. Despite Amy telling David to let them have Niles, David refuses to open the door. When the magistrate, Major John Scott, arrives, he's shot and killed while trying to take Tom's gun. Having murdered one man, the crew begin a siege on David's house. With various household implements, David incapacitates or kills most of the attackers, and the final one is shot dead by Amy. And David drives Niles back to town as credits roll. And as credits start, I'm surprised you didn't ask. What is a straw dog? We will see that that is the title of this movie. We will get out-of-focus shots of kids doing Ring Around the Rosie around a dog. But is he a straw dog? (laughs) Is it? I I had to research this, look it up. Is it really like a Chinese celebratory like figurine that's used for some kind of celebration? Like that is all the definitions I found of straw dogs. That's what it says on Wikipedia, but that is not what my research dug up. Apparently what they did was, again, I want to remind you, this book was called The Siege of Trencher's Farm. They were going to go with that. They polled audiences and the problem was the cards came back saying, is it a Western? Is it a World War II movie? They knew they needed something different. And so Peckinpah just was like reading some Lao Tzu, you know, the famous author of the Tao Te Ching. And he found a passage that basically said, heaven is ruthless to people. It treats them like straw dogs. I don't know how that translation actually comes about. 
I read the passage. It wouldn't have stood out to me as the perfect title for this movie, but <laughs> nobody at the studio had a better idea, so it stayed. But then again, if it's saying that heaven treats people like straw dogs, it could be going back to Jacob's definition. I think, you know, keep in mind, like, this is pretty influential. I think the reason why Tarantino called his first film Reservoir Dogs is it just kind of connotates something sinister i mean you say straw dogs actually for a while i used to think they were like paper tigers but you know it makes you get creative imaginative what could be a straw dog yeah i, th I think of straw something out in the country dogs yeah, yeah the these mutts running around a farm i don't know yeah it, it connotates i think rural environments you're right farms and country and anytime you're using dogs i think of bad behavior right animalistic primal nasty savage behavior that's what i'm expecting to see and the one thing this thing was oscar nominated for i do not get but this horrid electronic score at the beginning they thought this was great i kind of liked it i thought it was moody yeah i i kind of get into it but yeah oscar winning uh, that didn't cross my mind nominated didn't win okay nominated that didn't cross my mind either <laughs> the synthesizer was relatively new so i do feel like if you had it in there that was like ooh novelty but i don't know i don't love this score that's one thing about this movie that could stand some improvement my question is and i i do love a film that just throws you in the middle and you got to figure out what's going on it probably goes back to my love of that original star wars film just like here you are in a battle and figure it out but why are they just buying a man trap? It's not even a bear trap in this. It's a man trap. Like, that is the opening scene, them buying a giant trap. My memory was it was a bear trap. They call it a man trap, though. It's huge. It is. This is what research will do for you. I, <laughs> this is a real thing. It is very different from a bear trap. If you have people poaching on your fields and you want them to stop, you go buy a man trap and they get caught in this scary device. I like countries where that's actually allowed. In the U.S., you would be sued. Even though they were robbing you, you would be sued for maiming them. Ah, not in Texas. <laughs> You're allowed to defend your home in Texas. I, they're not even robbing you. They're, they're, they're robbing you in the sense that they're killing animals on your land. I mean, poaching is just simply hunting on someone's private property. And I get the symbolism. I get where it's going, and it's going to become a literal thing they use at the end. Like, Oh, yeah, it's Chekhov's man trap. Yeah, it just feels like a weird antique to go shot. When I think of antiques, I don't think of man traps. Well, it, again, it, she's the one that got this. She is a man trap, yeah. Here's this woman walking down, yes, wearing a tight sweater with no bra, proudly smiling at everyone while children are dragging this cumbersome device behind her. Yeah, I think that this movie will have some blunt sexual imagery and men hunt for their prey, women seduce. Women lure you into traps. And we're supposed to think that, yeah, Amy is... This is her way of hunting. She wants all eyes on her. Yeah, literally the first shot of her is is her chest and obviously braless. Like, that is your introduction to Amy. And this is a little ahead of the game. I mean, Farrah Fawcett would really push that boundary in the late 70s on television. But early 70s, yeah, she is definitely putting that forward and so much younger than Dustin Hoffman in this movie. I think I looked it up and there's, what, 13 years between them? Right. And it was part of the reason why Hoffman wanted her fired. He just felt like maybe he thought it would look badly on him. They would accuse him of uh, Lolita syndrome or something. He couldn't rectify that, you know, an uh, academic man would have a wife that he didn't intellectually respect, to which I, I scoff. <laughs> I invite you. Yeah, isn't that the whole point of the film? 
Yeah, I actually feel like that's uh, much more common than the other way around. But yes, for whatever reason, Hoffman wanted an actress that would have been closer to his age and was uncomfortable with a 20-year-old in this part. It was Peckinpah specifically. I think he dated younger women. When he could date, it should be said. He did not have much luck with the opposite sex, but he was intrigued by them, and I definitely think that he was in love with Susan George before he turned against her on the set. Let me ask you, I don't know much about Peck and Paw as a director, and I do know that through literary deconstruction, sometimes you uncover the director's hidden meanings, or sometimes you are able to draw conclusions through your own analysis. And I don't mean just you, Stuart, but anybody who analyzes any work of fiction and is able to derive meanings and symbolism that was never an artistic intent, but can be seen there if that's what you see in the Rorschach blot. Is Peckinpah the type of person who would put this in there to say women use traps and is really going for all of that imagery? Or oh, yeah. is that something that maybe came along after the fact through deconstruction and other people's interpretations of the film? Peckinpah would be very much in trouble if he were a working director today. Some of the things he said to the press, and I think he was egging them on. I'd like to believe he didn't believe all of them. But he was known to say things like, oh yes, women want to be raped, and this woman was asking for it. So yes, I do definitely believe that he wants you to think that this woman is trying to draw in the men of the town. I mean, I think there is commentary going on throughout the film about maturity. And look, this is all tricky stuff to get into as we discuss it. But yeah, I, I think he portrays Amy as someone who is regressed. She is a 15 year old. Like we'll see Janice later, but I feel like Amy is on that same level. And Peckinpah wants to get at something about women like doing that kind of thing. Is he or is it just a one note depiction of women in this film where the two women characters in this movie neither has much differentiation from the other they both could be seen as sex crazed lolitas well yeah i will say that this film is about how we really are one note that women are sex crazed lolitas and men are violent jerks who want to kill each other at any given chance i would also add it was a surprise to me in this viewing i'd never had the thought before but i had a different impression about who the main character was in the past I think for lots of reasons, you know, Dustin Hoffman is the big star. I don't know who Susan George is. He's an American. Uh, I'm an American. He's a man. I'm a man. He can get lost in his head and be overly intellectual, a criticism you could probably lie at me. I focus just easily, almost instinctively on David so often when I watch this movie. But is she not really the main character? Is she not the person with the most interesting dilemma? Because she's of both worlds. This is a character that grew up in this town and on some level is a part of these people. They're not the other to her. They are her. They're her peeps. They're her folks. And at the same time, she's chosen this other life and maybe has brought David here to show that she is better than them, different than them, got away from their low-class life. Now there, I definitely think stuff is being read into this film. She cannot be the main character because she's too ill-defined. There are things going on with them as a couple, but yes, David 
Dustin Hoffman, the star, is the one who's going to have the big arc and the one from whose point of view we see most of the story. They're equal. She is not any one more dimensional than he is. I think she is. I really do. I think that I wish that there was some sort of characterization that would say why she brought him here, assuming it was even her idea to come here. They talk a lot about why they're here. And I think that, you know, we can get into it when we get into it, but it seems to be in part... One of the many things that gets said was David thought it would make her happy to return to her childhood home, that they're going to live in her childhood house, her father's house. He must have passed away. Uh, there's no mention of him now. And he's trying to fill that vacancy, that father void in the house. And that's why I said there seems to be a regression with Amy. For whatever reason, they've come back to this town, her hometown. I... I Someone agrees, Stuart. I, I I do feel like there's something really interesting with her it, that there's a lot of ambiguity in this movie. Again, there's a lot of muddy stuff that we'll have to work our way through as we get into the story. But I, I do feel like, yeah, it's it's never text in this film, but there is something going on deeper with her. But it is so ambiguous. Like, is it just about returning to your hometown that brings something childlike out in you? Is, is it her way of getting back at this husband who's ignoring her and neglecting her? Like, there's a lot of human nature going on in and Arnie, you said a Rorschach test. I, I think that is somewhat correct with this film. Like this will kind of reveal who you are and what you do believe deep down about the sexes and about human nature. And Arnie, if you feel like she's really underdeveloped in this viewing, I really paid attention to her as a character. I'm happy to say where I think she is at all given moments. But let's get to our hero. Let's get to our American. He is David Sumner, Dustin Hoffman, introduced carrying a, a, a box of bananas, maybe, or at least just groceries, looking very, very nerdy. And almost instantly defined as a coward, because he'll stop into this pub, and when a fight breaks out, when the town drunk is mad about being cut off, he is going to hide in the corner. We know that he is conflict avoidant. Yeah, I love that shot of him. He's standing between like the right in that corner in the door jam and like as Tom Hayden and the rest of these goons are walking out like that door is just pressing up against him. Like it's such a non-masculine stance to, to have of your hero just squished in between the corner and the door. And yet he won't let this drunk pay for his cigarettes either. At the same time, after the guy leaves and makes this big scene and the cop sort of busts everything up, then he's going to make the stand that he can pay for his own cigarettes. And again, that kind of defines him. As the American, I have more money than everyone else. I drive this nice convertible. I have this unique job that nobody here has ever, no one can even describe what it is. I can't describe what it is. It's like math, but like computers in 1971, like that seems very early on. <laughs> His head is full of stars. Yeah, he's literally trying to project astral configurations and how they might relate to radiation. Yes, yeah, something about radiation. That's what I got. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. was taking it as it's the 70s. You just say the word radiation. I don't think the screenwriters knew what exactly he did. No, no, that's you're missing the point. The point is that he's so deep into his head. He's such an intellectual that he's the opposite of her. She's all carnal, look at my body, and he's all lost in his thoughts and can only sometimes pay attention to her. Don't you wonder how they met? Like, was she his student? I really doubt that. I mean, the way that he dismisses her intellect and the way that she's struggling with basic concepts about math, I would guess probably not. I can tell you only that in the book, they did meet as colleagues 
and she was not from the area. This is something that has been added to the story, that she knows these locals. When she sees her old flame, Charlie Venner, that's a new dimension that Peckinpah is bringing in here. And that's why I like that David is played by Hoffman. Like, Nicholson, if that's who they went with, like, I don't know, he seems like kind of a tough guy. Like, he, he seems threatening. Hoffman, he never seems threatening to me. He could be trying to stop whatever monkey outbreaks there are. He's never going to seem like the tough guy. <laughs> oh, God. Outbreak. <laughs> I'll say this. I do feel that this movie plays a bit with stereotypical anti-Semitism because Hoffman is Jewish. And I think a lot of the things that they dislike about him are, you know, stereotypical Jewish traits, nebbishness, conflict avoidance, intellectualism. I feel like that it's a lot of Catholics attacking the Jew. I n never had a religious reading of that. To me, it was rural versus, yeah, the, the elitist, the intellectual. And American. There's a lot of cultural difference, but you're right. Probably, I don't think, David is a, a, an atheist. Certainly when he talks later about God, I don't believe that he is, you know, a devout Jew. But yes. No, but you name him David, Star of David. I mean, not every David is Jewish, but I hear what you're saying. It is definitely a reading that you could have. And because we know that about Hoffman, it's very easy to put that in there. We wouldn't have been as quick to do that with Nicholson. And he, through his inability to state what he wants, ends up inviting this man that he doesn't want anywhere near his wife. He knows that there is obviously some some history between Charlie and Anne, but he can't stop himself from saying, oh, you're a friend? Then come help finish my barn. You can repair the roof. And he's already hired people to repair the roof. I don't know how my contractor would feel if I came home one day and said to the contractor, oh, yeah, I've hired these other people on my own to help you. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how many contracts are actually going on here. It feels like, yeah, we'll hire some of the local help, and they're taking a long time, so let's get a couple more guys. Right, and when we see these guys that he's got, like, ick, I mean, like, one of them basically confesses to being a criminal that spent, you know, 10 months in jail and is just freshly out, happy to get any work, and the other guy is a rat man, like, and has this really, like, gets-under-your-skin giggle and talks about loving, you know, vermin and rodents more than people. I couldn't tell if he was there to kill rats or work on the garage. I think that goes hand in hand. I imagine this barn, because it doesn't have a roof, because it is, you know, the country, probably has a big rat problem. But yeah, he's always hanging out on the roof. I don't know if I see a hammer in his hand, but, you know, these guys aren't working very hard. It becomes pretty clear they're pretty lax, and they definitely are more focused on the pretty blonde local than they are on their work. And Amy is kind of giving it back. Like, it should be said that she is not happy to be ignored. What seems to be her central conflict is, I think this marriage was in trouble already in the States. And we can speculate as to why that might be. But she was hoping by having him here on his own turf that she could maybe have the upper hand change the power dynamic, not feel always out of her element. And instead, she's just ignored. She will do everything she can to try and be as interesting to David as his computations, and he will never really want to look at her. Their relationship is very odd to me because when they're driving up she's like trying to get in his pants in the car and I'm thinking okay they're very much in love and in lust with each other 
But then they get to the house. It's a little standoffish. What really gets me is she fucks with his equations on the chalkboard. And I'm like, <laughs> that's just not right. You don't do that. I'd be mad at her for that. Yeah, but the, the point is, do you notice your equations more than me? Well, you catch that little change from the plus to the minus sign. Yeah, she's attention-seeking. And does that make her 14 years old? Well, again, the actress is only 20, and how they might have met, it feels impulsive. However they got together, it seems to be like they they did it fast, and she maybe is regretting it now. Yeah, did, did David pick Amy so he could get a, whatever the equivalent of a green card is in the UK to get out of the States? <laughs> well, again, it, why are they here? Another thing that gets said, and then this is very relevant to the time period, uh, you may not catch it watching this film now, but in 1971, America is seen as like a nightmare, a place where these Englishmen are saying you can't walk down the street because there's all this rioting and killing and stabbing and black people are being oppressed. Uh, 50 years later, nothing has changed. <laughs> Maybe not. But David is like, yeah, I mean, like he has a little joke, but they asked him, have you ever seen anything like that? He's like, only in between commercials. It's always on the TV. He knows that certainly if he's a mathematician working at a university, he is dealing with counterculture, protests, violence. Kent State students were famously gunned down. The Bell Tower in Austin, Texas. Campuses were seen as a battleground because of Vietnam, because of racial injustice. His solution for that is to run away. I'm going to hide in my study. I'm going to think about the stars and the cosmos and abstract things and have nothing to do with the real world. And that may mean also cutting out my new wife, who's pretty, who I notice sometimes when I'm going to bed after I stimulate my body by jumping rope. But most of the time, I just want to think. I, I got to ask about jumping rope and counting in binary. Is, is that quicker to do? To count to 100 in binary? I thought that's like a whole string of numbers for each number of zeros and ones. Yeah, 100 and you can't even get to 100 in binary. It goes 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128. So <laughs> he either did 128 jumping jacks or he did 64 jumping jacks and rounded up. No, he did five. You're missing the joke. The point is he wants to get in. They make a bet about whether she'd be able to make her chest move before he could finish doing 100 jump strokes. And when it looks like she's ready to move the piece, he, he speeds it up. It's, he's ready to get laid. Oh, I got the joke. I just thought maybe the joke is, too, that Amy wouldn't have any idea what counting in binary is. Because I barely do. I don't think the screenwriters did either. They're like, this sounds like something a mathematician would say. Binary. The kids all know it. But why is she playing chess? That seems outside of her wheelhouse. She's trying to be smart like her husband. Yeah, that's the pressure. I'm with this really smart guy. What are we going to do together? Well, he likes chess, so I have to read a book about how to make a move. I mean, shit. I mean, this is this is where she's at in the relationship. And what I mean about trying to tip the dynamics so she has a little bit more power. Maybe by coming home, I have a little bit more sway. I can show you around. I can introduce you to the locals. You'll you'll need me more because otherwise, I'm always struggling to keep up with you. And he says some pretty mean stuff. I mean, he's like, "You're not so dumb after all." I mean, there were a couple lines that really oof it was just spiteful. Yeah, there's one where he says, you're a bright girl. And I'm like, that's kind of nice. But then you're not so dumb. I said to my wife, I'm like, that's a little backhanded. You wouldn't go so well if I'm like, you know, Marjorie, you're not so dumb. Yeah, Ooh. no, it's obviously 
very derogatory. And she feels it. And she's doing whatever she can to play on his terms. And occasionally, basically at bed, after he's wound the alarm clock and done all of his other nerdy little things, he'll give her a little bit of passion. Give her some of that rook. Yeah. I can't believe he was winding his clock first. I'm like, I understand the propensity to fall asleep immediately after, but come on. Are you so bored with her that you are just going to ignore the hotness coming at you? I think that they were, again, playing with the overly intellectual, you know, all brains, no penis stereotype there. Well, yeah, because that is the thing you least expect to turn into a savage. And I think that is the point of this film, that it doesn't matter how much your head is in the stars, how much you could calculate formulas of radiation, you're going to turn into a caveman by the end of it. Yeah, he really wants to work. At the end of the day, he could probably be fine here alone. Like, he spends most of his time, you know, he's pretty blunt about it. I love you, Amy. But I want you to leave me alone. Go repair something. Go, you know, chew your gum elsewhere. But I don't want to devote time to you, which is, I think, a crushing realization for this wife. I'm committed to someone that will never love me the way I want to be loved. That is something I didn't remember from my first and only viewing before this one of this film was just how misogynistic David is. And it's something that really stuck out, like trying to, if we want to say there's reason and logic to these characters' actions, like trying to understand Amy, like, yeah, she is really treated awful by her husband in this film. She's treated awful by this whole film. This entire film is misogynistic and I can't decide if it's intent or a product of its time. No, I I see her actions acting out against this neglect. Like, oh, even my husband won't pay attention to me. Well, there's these these old flings that I knew before that paid attention to me. And so we'll, we'll see some flirtatious behavior. Not that that justifies what happens. Well, that's where we get in trouble. Yes. Because certainly of the times, we do not want to send the signal that women ask for sexual assault. And yet, clearly, this is a bored woman who is willing to take at least eye ogles and to feel beautiful. She wants to be seen, at the very least. Seen topless. She is putting herself into harm's way because of that need, because of her loneliness, because of the situation. Yes, she is becoming more and more bored with the situation and looking elsewhere. And again, keep in mind, her old boyfriend, he wasn't good enough to marry, but he's there now. He's joined the crew on the roof. And so... She's seeing him more often. She's thinking about him more often. But she gives the entire crew the peep show, not just him. Right. And again, part of that, what was that about? Was that about stimulating them or was that getting back at her husband? Like, kind of both. I mean, when we see their exchange, he can be awfully cruel. He thinks he's being loving, or at the very least, he's trying to be nice and saying, I don't have time for you. But her way of rebelling and fighting back on that is, well, then I'll go find it somewhere else. And yeah, I agree. You don't ever want to say that she's asking for it, but she put thoughts there. I mean, she was acting recklessly in however you want to look at it. Yeah, I was surprised that they do have this whole conversation. Well, you're not wearing a bra, so you're asking for it, which I imagine played very differently in 1971 than it would in 2021 with audiences. Like now we're very critical of that kind of idea. I think that was more of the mainstream thought back then. Like, eh, if you're going to show stuff off, you're going to get these men all worked up and don't be surprised if something happens. I mean, if you're walking down the road with a giant diamond on every finger, you're more likely to get robbed than if you... You're not asking for it, though. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) 
Right. No, you're not asking for it, but you become a bigger target. I understand that, yes. And and that is the muddiness of this film, especially, I think, with modern audiences 50 years later. Yes, it's it's still never right to rob the person, and you're, they're not asking to be robbed. They just, I think, more people are tempted. It'd probably be more wise to put that diamond away, though, if you're in a dangerous town. Yeah, it's not caution. She's yes. being dangerous. Her her loneliness is causing her to act out in ways that is, yeah, potentially going to be very bad for her. And it should also be said in the 70s, bra burning being what it is and all of that, not wearing a bra was a statement. Again, she might kind of resent the fact that her husband is a coward. His response to the counterculture and all of that revolution was to run away. Maybe she's more of a modern girl. She certainly, I think, in marrying him, thought she was getting out of small-minded thinking, and now she's finding out that he's just a a different breed of loser. I mean, they're going to hit you over the head with that. She says he's a coward for running away and taking the grant money to do this research because he was afraid of the politics and everything of academic life. So they're going to drive this home again and again is that David doesn't want conflict, except apparently with his wife. He's more than happy to engage in conflict with his wife, but everybody else he tries to run away from. No, he wants no conflict with her. He doesn't want any issue with her at all. He wants her when he wants her, and she's like a possession. I, I'll pay attention to you when I have the time. At night, basically. When I'm done with my thinking, I'll have time for you. And until then, no. Yeah, when she goes to put that gum on the chalkboard, again, a very regressed thing to do. He's like, don't do it, don't do it. And then she just does it and, and nothing happens. Like he doesn't scream at her, do anything. That That's all going to come later when he finally, I guess, gets confrontational with her in, in a physical way. Yeah, but he does get verbally aggressive with her. You want to help me? Clean up this place. Bring me drinks. You know, do the wifely duties. But he wouldn't yell at anybody else that way. That feels like an evolution, though, throughout this film is that he gets more and more aggressive with her as he is emasculated, perhaps more and more in front of these country folk. Peckinpah has said in many interviews that David is the villain of this movie. He is not the hero. He is the aggressor. Oh, by the end, I, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I completely disagree with that. I don't understand that point of view. Well, let me elaborate. What David is so wrong about is he's not being intellectually honest about who he is. He's trying to hide from who he is. He's trying to live in an esoteric world and deny his carnal passions, the physical, what have you. That will cost him everything. I don't know that that makes him the villain. Again, it gives him an arc and perhaps a tragic arc if you want to view it from that direction. You don't have to call him that. I'm just telling you what the director <laughs> said when he was making this. Yeah, I, I see it. I, again, kind of jumping to the end. He is going to wage war to protect a child murderer. Now, he doesn't know that, but... Yes, it's funny how his allegiances will align and what he is willing to take a stand for and what he is not. But in this moment... He is hiding and she is trying to be seen. And we see in parallel, there's another girl in town. Maybe the next Amy is Janice. Janice is the teenage daughter of that town drunk, Tom. And he has been very vocal about the fact that she is, well, he doesn't acknowledge that it's her flirtations. He's acknowledging that the child molesting town simpleton is going to create a problem for Janice and he's going to kill his brother if he doesn't do something about it. 
This is an aspect that I did not remember of this film is Henry, this yeah simpleton, as you called him, who did something in the past. You know, the, the town says they take care of their own. So this person wasn't locked up. So I'm not sure what that means. They give him a good beating after he did whatever he did. It's definitely something to women because they're like, he's by the girls again. So, yes. Yeah, it's children specifically. I think that he is a child predator. We'll just leave it in a general category. That feels like he knows what he's doing, and and I don't get the sense that he's actually intellectually capable of understanding his actions. Well, we definitely see she's more, Janice is more aggressive than he is. He's not trying to take the opportunity to whisk her away. She's the one that is waving, flirting, and will ultimately pull him into a dark room. Yeah, talking about difficult human nature, discussing that kind of thing, it is Janice. She's, you know, yeah, sure, she's a teenager, but she's the one that's flirtatious. And she's even spying on David and Amy, like, as they, you know, get under those sheets after playing chess. Mm -hmm. There is a sexuality she's exploring. Like Amy, I think she has a little bit of a crush on the other. Like, here's something that's not like anybody else in this town. And that's attractive at first. Wow, I've never met anyone like you. Amy's clearly over it by this point. But Janice is just discovering that her world is bigger than, yeah, this little town. Yeah, she's going to trade looks with David later on in the film. Right. And so she'll take it wherever she can. Again, it's the same situation of, I'm so in need of being seen and sexually validated that I'm taking a real risk here by playing with Henry. Yeah, the thing about Henry that I dislike is it feels very derivative. I mean, everybody knows Lenny of From Mice and Men. (laughs) That was my reference. (laughs) So here it feels like a big unoriginal storyline just plopped in the middle of this movie and it's there to be a catalyst of events but i'm claiming that amy doesn't have much character let alone henry here who is yeah just exceedingly one note and i feel like they could have come up with a more organic way to set off the final events than to have this whole subplot it is not from the novel it was no one ever used the word words of mice and men but it has to be yeah they use it as the device because in the original it was a serial killer that had escaped from a snowy night ambulance turnover and so they didn't want to do that they've worked him more as just yes this town thinks it could handle this problem on its own no outsiders needed and creates that dynamic again of We don't want someone telling us what to do, this outsider, these judgments. I'm hearing a lot of complaint, Arnie. I gotta say, I haven't heard one compliment yet. You're not liking this? I like the score at the beginning. (laughs) To me, this movie is moving slow and hitting the same note again and again. And it's, I feel that where it's headed is fairly obvious and it takes quite a while to get there. Which is the nature of tragedy. I mean, you will admit, like, tragedy is not about not knowing it's going to go bad. It's about seeing it happen and being unable to do anything about it. Watching people do their best to escape a trap that they cannot. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me is is the way they're going to get to where we know it's going, that it is this intellectual and we're going to see him have this complete downfall. I mean, he, he has this little confrontation with the town vicar where, you know, he doesn't believe in God and, you know, but the Catholic replies, you know, are, aren't scientists responsible for the nuclear bomb? And, and you know, it, it really getting into how fragile society is. And I, I think this movie really captures that idea that civilization, it, it's it really is just like 
kind of a fluke that that we're able to do all this because we have awful natures. And, and I think this film does an effective job at, at displaying all those different aspects. And such deep resentment. Again, in the same way that Amy and David seem to love and resent each other. Yeah, this vicar's happy to take the money, right? Like, we need a donation. Like, he's invited himself over supposedly to be friendly, but really it's like, hand out, (laughs) give me that wad of cash in your pocket. He's happy to say, don't you feel responsible for radiation? You know, like, you people are the ones that created the bomb. And David comes back with, and you people are the ones that talk about Christ and, and kill people in his name with bloodshed. And so responsibility becomes a big word in the second half of this narrative. Who's responsible and where those boundaries are becomes a very sticky scenario, which, Arnie, I don't think it's predictable where this would go. If you were seeing this the first time, you could imagine that it would go bad. You could imagine that women are going to be assaulted. But I don't think that you would imagine that David would end up defending Henry. I know it'll end in physical confrontation. I didn't see David defending Henry the first time I saw this movie. I remembered that coming back the second time. But I knew it would end in violence. Well, yeah, it's Dustin Hoffman with broken glasses on the cover. Yeah. Well, I didn't even see that cover, I think, when it was VHS when Stuart and I saw it back in the day, and he just brought a tape. I didn't know what I was in for. I got to imagine, like, that is the iconic imagery of this. Do they have, like, some more rote movie poster for this, like, where David's embracing Amy, like, holding a gun to defend her? I did see some foreign ones where they actually drew a straw dog. <laughs> kind oh, of no. goofy. <laughs> it was a little bit Wizard of Oz. It was kind of a flying monkey and scarecrow at the same time. <laughs> didn't really work. But yeah, I mean, I guess all I would say is if you're feeling like the vice is tightening and you know things are going to go bad, that should be what you want, right? That is, as an audience member, what you're here for is to watch that tragic downfall, is to watch things break. That is, I think, the twisted desire of the audience. And I think if you're going in, you know, we started this off talking about home invasion movies. This so far has been more or less a character study to me. It's, it's when like cats start getting hung in the closet and that's when it starts feeling maybe more home invasion. So it might, you know, if that's what you're going in looking for, it's going to take a little while to get there. So who hung the pussy? They never reveal it. (laughs) There is a fan theory and it's interesting. I'd never thought about it, but I read about it this morning. David did it, right? David is throwing grapefruits and tomatoes and is kind of mean to that cat. And, you know, she's always looking for it. Maybe he's it's bugging him in the office. And so he lets it outside. There are some people who believe that it's David in his first off-screen snap that hung that cat and then doesn't want to admit it when he opens the closet door. I don't know if I buy it, but interesting. Yeah, I don't buy that. I remember the scene where he's throwing fruit at it, and I'm like, okay, this is early on telling us there's something uncivilized about this intellectual. Like, I thought that was a nice little touch there, but no, I I don't think he hung the cat. I would believe he'd kill the cat. I don't believe he'd hang the cat in his own closet to then later pretend to find. He acts way too surprised. He's like totally shuts down. He can't even say anything. He sits down, has to point at the closet. So Amy has to go see it. Like he can't even talk about it. That that doesn't seem like a reaction to someone who actually did it. No, he turns into Raymond Babbitt, like he, who just put the baby in the bathwater. I mean, he's like definitely channeling Rain Man here. And, yeah. <laughs> and she, of course, naturally is accusatory. It's got to be Norman or it's got to be Chris. And I want, basically, the implication is 
certainly by the traditional gender roles, the man of the house would need to go and confront these men that show up the next morning and say, hey, what the hell? Now, you want me to say positive things about the movie, I will say this. I also identify with David. I'm not the most handy person with hammers and nails. I usually hire contractors to do work on the house. I'm not that knowledgeable. And sometimes I don't necessarily fit in with the vibe and the conversation of some of those people who work around my house. Not a lot of Marvel and Star Wars talk with the construction workers? Surprisingly, these days, more than these days, <laughs> yes, a lot. But 10 years ago, not so much. No, I, I get what you're saying, though. Like, I had a job where I, I did office stuff, like like reporting and analysis, but it was with the construction crew. So it was just, I always just kind of sat in my cube because it was always awkward conversations. Unless I needed some advice, like, oh, my dryer stopped working. What should I do? And then they give me great advice. It'd work. I'd be able to fix it on my own. But yes, not normally the type of people I'd get along with, just different interest. And then I had a contractor who was doing a real shit job on my house about a decade ago. And I had to confront this person repeatedly and eventually fire this person. And I'm not good with direct confrontation. I got a lawyer to tell my employer I quit my job because I didn't want to face my employer and say I quit. So I understand where David's coming from. And if I had to confront somebody because they killed a cat I didn't like, I understand his hesitancy and his reluctance and his deciding to find ways to game it and bring it up instead of bringing it up directly. I completely understand where he's coming from in this entire situation. And I understand why Amy's frustrated as hell about it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I can empathize with David because, look, hashtag not all women, but I've been with some Amy's where it's like, hey, you're the man. You got to go deal with this in the most confrontational way. I don't have to do that because I'm a woman and they're not going to do anything against me. But you're the man. Go do this. And I'm like, I don't want to confront like four people and get in a fight like that's That's awful for me. Like, but again muddy human nature that does happen where yeah prove you're a man stand up for me stand up for our cat and go take care of this right and so his solution is that he like i'll just go and ask if they've seen the cat which i think is that's a pretty good like a little wimpy but like that should at least get the conversation going but then he even flakes on that he goes and like ends up having them like get the man trap and set that and put it on the wall he doesn't even Bring up the cat. Well, I thought he was so upset because Amy brought out that milk for the cat. And it's like, oh, you're not going to let me do it on my own. See, I thought he was like bringing them in. And then he kind of, he got nervous about it and backed out. But I thought he was also using this as an opportunity to catch them off their guard and then be like, hey, yeah. by the way, after you've hung my man trap, have any of you seen my cat? Yeah, I, I thought that man trap was a bit of a flex. Like, hey, I got this big old man trap. Like, don't mess with me. Now let's talk about the cat. Really? I, it felt more like I have trouble, like, handling my own stuff, and I need you guys to lift it for me. Like, it felt wimpy. And yet I understand that, too, because if I had a man trap or a flat screen TV, I would need some help hanging that on the wall. Yeah, no, I, again, they're it's all relatable, which, again, these kinds of pressure cooker scenarios should be. You should be able to look from 
from anyone's vantage point and get where they're coming from. That's why it's going to work as drama or not, is whether you can see them as more than cartoonish. And yes, uh, this couple may be a little bit broadly drawn with he's the intellectual that doesn't get enough boners and she just wants to get laid. But I'm believing this conflict here. And yeah, she just basically... She gets tired of waiting, and so she puts the the milk out there. It could have been a conversation starter, but he just ultimately ends up signing off on a hunting trip, which is like going so badly in the in the opposite direction of where he needs to. He needs to be confronting them, and now he's palling around. Yeah, except, I don't know, if I was in this situation, I don't know if I'd want to go on this hunting trip. I would believe they'd maybe want to shoot me. Right, if they killed a cat. See, and... I get it, though. He probably doesn't want to go. He's not a hunter. And yet he wants to be one of the guys. Kind of a pure pressure thing. And he's like, I don't have a gun. How's this thing? And he's got like, what, a pellet <laughs> a gun? Uh, I don't even know what kind of gun that is. It's her dad's gun at that. It's what's on the wall. Like, he doesn't have guns. Yeah, but I also thought, like, look, I got a gun, guys. Like, I there's these attempts to be a macho man that I see in him. Oh, there is. Now that he's forced to be in this situation, but he's run so far from it. Like, again, his idea to the conflicts of America is, I'm going to leave America. Well, now it's violence is knocking on his door and saying, it's fun. There's plenty of fun things to shoot outside your door. Let's go. Again, if he could stand up for himself, he would say no. But unfortunately, he just allows himself to be talked into being left out in the middle of the forest waiting for geese to come in his bag. What do they tell him? That they're going to chase the geese towards him because you don't want to get a lot of pellet in them. They're not a lot of meat, so you don't want to have to shoot them. So he's supposed to stand there and just bag them up, like just chase them down ultimately, which again, feels very emasculating. We're going to do the tough stuff and then you run around and try to put the bird in a bag. Standing there and holding the bag, being left holding the bag is is an expression yeah. stating about what a loser position you're in. Like he can feel it right there that he is just has been, you know, tricked. He doesn't know the depth of the trick because obviously there's an ulterior motive to having him stand out into the wilderness for Charlie. But yeah, he just thinks that they're being mean and bullying him and he couldn't possibly hope to even kill one of these geese. So when he finally does shoot one, it should be a victory moment, except, well, it's intercut with something else that's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I figured that they were playing a trick on him. They're all laughing and everything. And looking at him and laughing, you could tell that they're making fun of him and he's got something that they're going to do to him. But I did not remember what it was, was going back to sleep with his wife. Yeah, Arnie, you... I. I thought it was telling and I definitely had a different read on it watching this time but in your plot summary you know you say more or less Amy and Charlie have consensual sex uh I said he fucks her okay but then you call the next one rape like I feel like right the first one it's like it starts as rape but it doesn't end as rape no, and that's where this gets really ambiguous and muddy and difficult because, again, like, if you want to be real about human nature, a lot of it goes down like this, I bet. Right? Uh, where, yeah, there's some resistance, and then maybe it's an old fling, and she's like, you know what, it's, it feels good to be needed again, and, like, she definitely is, like, 
patting him down by the end and like feeling his chest and it feels more consensual by the end. Here's the problem though. That is the male fantasy of rape is that, oh, she just, she just wants it. She's saying no, but meaning yes, which makes this scene actually more grotesque to me than the out and out rape we're about to see. I would say that that does happen though. That I don't know. I don't want to make broad generalizations. I don't want to justify anything, but I'm saying this is really capturing the darkness, the difficulty of human nature. Think of her as a character and not a symbol of innocence being defiled. She was someone that left this place because it wasn't good enough for her, thought she could get something better in America, brought it back to try and save that marriage, is finding there's no saving that marriage, and is now thinking, well, you know, there's no place like home. Maybe Charlie could be it. But you killed my cat. I mean, like, what? where this starts is, did you kill my cat? Never confirmed. You're right, Arnie. But I don't know if he is the responsible one. She thinks it's Chris or Norman, who's the second individual to come in the room. Let me put it this way. Charlie does not see himself as a rapist. Charlie sees himself as inserting himself back in the life of a woman that he let get away. The life and other parts, but yeah. Yeah, and to him, this is probably a joyous moment until he finds out he's not alone, until he finds out that Norman is there with the shotgun. For her, obviously, and and this was something that Susan George talked about, it was a very painful three days to film this. Three days to do this? Yes. The, the difficulty is not just, obviously, this is an uncomfortable scenario. It was the fact that at this point, Sam Peckinpah and her were at such odds. He would not look at her. He would not speak to her. He was very dismissive and awful. So it should have been able to get her in the mind space of how David was treating her. She had basically almost threatened to walk off the set if he didn't let her act. What she basically, her gambit was, I don't know how you're going to film this, but I would like for you to stay on my face. I want you to see through my face and my reactions everything the audience needs to know. If the idea is that it starts out as assault and then she consents and gives in to that, I want that to come through in my voice, in my eyes, in my facial expressions, and, and what I do with my hands. And I think he had something else entirely in mind and was mad that she had essentially hijacked his shoot. So things were very, very tense. I will say the film is better for her hijacking it then because this is why I don't like to watch this film over and over like you do, Stuart. This is why it also sticks in my mind. The scene of when Norman goes about doing his thing, just, yes, holding that camera on her face and the look on her face and being able to have to be confronted with that pain and just everything is, it's very difficult for me to watch. It's easy to imagine that this this woman might think that this is a good idea. It's horrible to think that this is a message that many young men could take into consideration that when women say no, they really mean yes. And that seems to be the crux of why this scene remains so hot button is for some people, this will always be an invitation to rape. And to other people, it's just a character moment. It's about this woman deciding she'd rather go home again. Yeah, it's, I find it an ugly scene. Oh, sure. Who would disagree? And I do find the Charlie bit uglier than when the other guy comes in. And then Charlie kind of helps hold her down. It was like... 
That is the confusing part. It's only in the unrated cut. You wouldn't see that. And I had never seen the unrated cut before. So I was really blown away. I had forgotten that Norman even came in. Like I didn't remember there was a second attacker and that, yes, it suddenly went from being sexual assault from someone that she knew and kind of used to like to sexual assault with someone that she was repulsed by. The fact that Charlie, I think he's shocked. The way it plays to me is Charlie is so shocked and he's being held at gunpoint, it should be added, yeah. that he just kind of goes along with it because he didn't know that this was going to happen. In a sense, he's been assaulted too, though obviously not in the same way. He will ultimately make this right in the end. When Norman comes to sexually assault Amy again, he will not be a glad participant. But yes, uncomfortable? Yes. God damn it, I hope you are. I hope that nobody is sitting there giggling or enjoying it or, you know, like, I can't think of a screen rape that is more challenging, quite frankly, because of what it asked us to consider and because it's going to play hot button with the fact that Amy kind of wants it, at least from Charlie. I find Last House on the Left far more brutal and hard to watch because... That feels more realistic rape with the kidnapping and the subjecting to abuse. Realistic? The comedy? Well, the rape scene, Stuart. Not the movie overall, but the rape scene. But the lead-in. You're acting like, but just that moment. Okay, but the lead-in has been, these are hilarious yokels. And then all of a sudden, I'm expected to be horrified for these women who haven't been characters at all. But the rape does go on for like 20 minutes in that movie, too. Yeah, look. It's uncomfortable anytime. I can't yes. think of a rape scene that I'm ever thinking, oh boy, this is fun to watch. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, people really laugh at that attempted rape. Wow, I don't remember that. I don't even remember that was in that movie. But Clockwork Orange took the gambit of we're going to do singing in the rain and make it sort of a comedy bit. And it ain't funny. Like, I mean, every time it should be queasy and nauseating and I won't split hairs. They're always gross. But this is a more complicated circumstance because we've been asked to think of the characters in a different way and i do feel like again it goes throughout this movie but as we get into the 70s and you know vietnam hasn't quite broken out at this point but i think you know you just look at post-world war ii with the, the soviet union and just all these different alliances it just gets muddy and tricky and we're going to support these awful regimes just because the enemy my enemy is my friend like i i feel like you get all that muddiness into a home invasion film with this where, yeah, you're my rapist, but you're also an old fling and maybe I like it by the end and, oh, I'm going to defend my house to protect a child murderer. Like, just nothing is clear in this film. It, it is all all just mud. Yeah, to put it bluntly, I don't think the movie ever takes the position of the person you should endorse. Everyone here makes huge failings. Everyone makes huge mistakes that makes them difficult to be, air quotes, likable. I don't think there's a likable character in this movie. It's not about liking them and then wanting them to go and cut off somebody's dick or stab somebody in the eyeball like so many of these movies are. It's not going to allow you to feel good when they get vengeance. It's about feeling bad all the time. And yeah, this movie really starts feeling bad as we go to church and like we just keep getting flashbacks and cuts back to that rape. And like that is, you can tell that's all that's on our mind because we just keep going back to that with these little flashes as we're trying to sing in, have dinner at this church meeting. Yeah, but she never tells her husband about any of this. She's not with him anymore. Again, it's almost questionable. Has she chosen to be with Charlie? I think 
Here's the weird thing. If Norman hadn't come in there, she might have already cleared out. She might not have been home when David got home. Like, she might have been saying, I'm done being married to a nerdy mathematician. I want my rugged, manly man. And that could be where she's at. Now things are just weird, but there's no way that she's going to lean on David for support. Yeah, you you see how she attacks David when he comes back from that hunting trip. Like, she is rightfully so, like, vicious. She's been brutalized and, and assaulted, and, like, she just really goes after him. Well, then he makes that statement, and, I mean, it's just perfectly and in, in how just dundering his thought process is. He's like, Charlie and Norman really stuck it to me in the moor, and you're just yeah. like, oh, my God, you don't even know what the fuck you're talking about, dude. And that's how she's feeling. Again, the reason why she doesn't tell him is because she's not on his side. And we will see, even in the climax, that she's going to have difficulty citing an allegiance. Oh, yeah. But she also says she calls him a coward, but she also calls herself a coward. Maybe that's going back to not coming to David and talking about the rapes and, and maybe going to the major, this police figure in this town. And I, I, again, in the 70s, how much did that get reported? It, it was a different time. But yeah, she's even admitting to herself that she's not willing to stand up by calling herself a coward. Funny fact, the major you pointed him out, we haven't really discussed him. He's walking around the movie. I've always been like, why is he his arms in a cast? His arm's in a sling. I noticed that at the end, yeah. What's that about? Well, <laughs> apparently, like, Sam Peckinpah, like, woke him up in the middle of the night and was like, let's go drinking. And, like, this was, again, why Peckinpah almost was fired from the shoot, is that so often the party never ended. And this guy broke his arm either during a bar brawl or because he oh, wow. was drunk and <laughs> fell. I've, hear, I've heard... <laughs> Different stories, but essentially, this is the kind of chaos that's going on all the time. You'll also notice that David Warner, who's playing the simpleton, is walking with a cane. He had just had a, a drinking binge where he broke both his feet and wasn't even sure he could walk again. And Sam Peckinpah was like, God damn it, you're going to get up and do this part, God damn it, <laughs> and scared him basically into learning to walk again. Great physical therapist. <laughs> Maybe that was his real calling. Sam Peckinpah <laughs> is your personal trainer. You will not cheat. You will get in all your, your crunches. I do all my burpees. And speaking of David Warner... Maybe it's because I just know that actor too well from so many other roles, but I really have trouble believing him in this one. Why do you say that? I feel like he's affecting the mentally challenged bit a little bit too much. Well, they're not saying he's mentally challenged. They're, they're saying that he's dangerous, that he's a pedophile, that there's something wrong with him. No one has the words because no one knows the psychology. They're not modern people, but he is just, they don't want other people to take him away. He seems on the slower side to me. Yeah, obviously there's a developmental issue. Yeah, again, of mice and men, Lenny, he's and the way Warner's playing it is broad. It's really not broad, Arnie. I'm going to staunchly disagree with that. I've seen broad, and this ain't it. Like, I feel like, again, he has the cane only because he really needed it to walk. You've seen I Am Sam? Yeah, I, I, I've seen good actors go down this road and fail, and I feel like this is not overplayed. And again, we don't even really know other than some kind of developmental hang-up what is going on with him, which makes him dangerous, again. On a certain level, you want to be able to trust this guy. But at the same time, when yeah, we get to this church function and Janice wants to, you know, after David rebuffs her, she wants to run off with Henry. We know that this is where things are going to really turn tragic. David Warner's a good actor. We've covered him recently with Titanic. Star Trek V. He's always playing the villain. It's weird that we're being asked to think of him as possibly good here or like <laughs> maybe not capable of what he's being accused. 
but he does kill. He, he will ultimately, because he's afraid of the Tom mob that is combing the streets looking for him, he will crush this girl and snap her neck. The heat of passion. Just like Lenny. Yeah. Again, is that really, are you angry at this movie for taking from Mice and Men? So blatantly and not even bothering to cover it up a little bit, yeah. I mean, she's not dressed in a bunny suit. (laughs) Or are you just not liking this movie and then taking your pot shots where you can? Because I feel like if you were liking this movie, you would just say this is an homage. Yeah, that that, because that is my reference. I'm like, oh, Mice and Men, wrote that down, underlined it, moved on. Yeah, that's they obviously don't think they're pulling one over on you. They know everyone had to read that. And if they got through high school English, you probably know the story. <laughs> I think that they're they're utilizing that. That is that's a piece that it's it's not theft. They know you know. Well, let me ask you this just to get the last of my complaints out of the way is what do you think of the technical aspects of this film because it was hurting my ears. And this is the Criterion edition. The sound of this film, just the rec- the vocals and such were scratchy and muddy and I've seen a lot of films from the late 60s and early 70s you can have professional audio in those the godfather as an example and the graduate and this sounded awful and didn't look great I mean well I would say that the certainly by this point in the movie it's an onslaught. Just to watch this movie is painful. When Amy is now having PTSD and we're just hearing all those noisemakers and kids screaming and the cutting is so rapid, it's, yeah, it's crazy making. It's dry. It's all I can do to keep watching the screen. It's so intense. But again, I, the artistic intent is to be putting you in her mindset. Again, I would argue she's the main character. You are supposed to be thinking about what she's going through. No, I'm saying from frame one, the audio was bad, though. I did not experience that. I mean, it's the 70s, and I would say that part of Peckinpah's trick, the way that he gets his performances, the way he manipulates people, he does a lot of things off the cuff. Part of the reason why his things are fast edited is that, yes, he likes subliminal imagery and violence, and part of it is a lot of his stuff wouldn't cut together because he's always just like running and gunning. He's always just like, oh, let's trick Dustin into thinking like we're just talking to him and then I'll tape him for real and use that as the performance. Like he is known for manipulating actors, not trusting them to give the performance. There's three editors on this. I think they struggled to put this movie together and part of that might be the technical rawness and just the, you know, this is not a director that is going to have storyboards and really complicated shots about how this is all going to work out. He's working on the fly. He's, he's instinctual and improvising. Yeah, this doesn't look shiny like a Marvel film. It, it feels like a 70s film. It looks like one. It sounds like one. Again, I said The Godfather. I'm not talking Avengers. The Godfather. The Graduate. Yeah, this feels like 70s. This is grainy and dark. And I would I would only put this back to you and to say, but did you not feel that way about Last House on the Left, a movie you recommend? I did. And we brought it up during that podcast. We hadn't discussed the technical aspects of this, which I found very difficult to enjoy. But any different than the Craven film? Mm, no, no. Okay, that, that's what I'm struggling with. I'm hearing you say, I don't like this movie for lots of reasons, but there's a movie that I would say is more rudimentary, certainly in its calculus of human nature, and pretty much covers the same terrain, and you seem to be much more cool with that. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, I'm waiting for a reason. (laughs) Do you have a thought as to why one is easier to watch or more enjoyable? 
I feel that Last House on the Left goes way more wrong in certain regards, especially with that music and things that it has and the uneven tone and the wackiness and things that this film is at least consistent in tone and thus much better in that regard. Okay. So I heard a compliment there. So this is tonally <laughs> more of a piece and thus I would say a better film, but not more enjoyable. And it's far better directed, honestly. Right, yeah. We're in agreement until we get to the, I'm liking this and you're not. And so I guess I can understand that it is a slow buildup. And I can also understand that if you think home invasions are the purge and they need to be 90 minutes and we need to get to the blood within 20 minutes, I guess that this would be kind of a slog. But as a slow burn, as a we're raising up the temperature and now everything is going to be exploding, I'm riding this journey and I feel like, I don't know, I'm curious to know why you didn't get on board because it seems to be a problem from the get-go. It's a problem with pacing and Last House on the Left does get to the meat of things much more quickly. Yeah, it's a shorter film, I believe. Not too much shorter, though. And But within 15 minutes, we have evil villains and victims, and then the suspense starts to build when the Krug gang goes and ends up staying at the house of the woman they murdered. And that's where the pan starts boiling again. Whereas here... There's a lot of shots of Dustin Hoffman and a lot of repeated hittings of the same notes of him and his wife. Now, I'm not saying whether or not I'm recommending this film, and you're jumping to a conclusion in that regard, but I will say that the first hour of this movie could have been much better if it were the first 45 minutes of this movie. Okay, I can understand that. Well, I guess the reason why I'm jumping to that conclusion is, again, I've yet to hear a genuine impassioned compliment. I'm hearing, I'm bored, this is ugly, I don't like the sound, and I don't like these people. And I kind of get it. And this is something that happens on Now Playing when there's three people and two are praising the hell out of something, and the third person agrees with a lot of what's been said, but also has another opinion. And thus, I'm being cast as the villain of the piece when, in fact, I'm not calling anyone a villain for having a different opinion. No, no, but I'm using broad strokes. I'm using broad strokes. You have a different opinion. It is not making <laughs> you bad in my mind. But I agree with a lot of what's been said, including the disgustingness of the rape scene. And I went on at length about how I can empathize with Dustin Hoffman's character's journey here. But not Amy. Amy is a difficult one. I don't feel like Amy is well enough to find. I really don't. And then at a certain point, she becomes a prop. Why are you saying that? I've literally been telling you how she's in the center of all of this, her old world and her new, and which way she's going. But I don't feel like the movie does enough with that to make it impactful. At no point does any of this that we're discussing impact the overall plot it impacts the viewers interpretation of events and we hate charlie and the gang more for what they did to amy but the movie would go on the same whether they did that or not well i i agree in that yes you could just have this group of guys don't like henry because he's got some past with kids or whatever and you know basically the 
David accidentally hits him and takes him to the house and they go after him. Like, do you need all this other stuff? I don't know. Maybe next week when we talk about the remake, maybe they change all that. I haven't seen it. But for me, because this isn't just, again, you're saying home invasion, Stuart, introducing this as a home invasion film. Technically, yes, but I don't feel like that's the point. This is not trying to get you the same thrills as a home invasion. So I've enjoyed this journey, all these different character studies and different, you know, humanity in a microcosm, more or less, to get to this big buildup, which, yeah, I think a lot of audience, you hear Home Invasion, you want the violence, you want the the thrills, and this is going to take its time to get there. You're helping me see that, because to me, the way to build a Home Invasion is to do what they've done, build the characters. It doesn't matter if you don't care, and here, they've spent a lot of time setting up what now will be exploding ironies. What I love about the last portion of this movie is it does what all satire should. It makes the characters reverse positions and suddenly Amy will be the pacifist that is more than happy to say let's just give the bad guys what they want it's not time to be John Wayne and suddenly this mathematician has pride about a total stranger who's done awful things including killing a young girl tonight yeah manslaughter at minimum right and this is where he's gonna he's gonna die on that hill that is what's fascinating yeah this almost I don't want to say comedy, but yeah, this very violent ending plays almost comedic to me because the things you pointed out, Stuart, how they reverse irony. If you think irony is funny. Yes. Yes. The irony. Yes. Yeah. Which I do. I do. It's my sense of humor. Yeah. And now that David is going around who fled America because he didn't want to deal with protest on campus going around. I must defend my home. It's not even his house. It's his wife's dad's house. Not only that, but these men are coming and saying this man put his ugly hands on Janice. You put your ugly hands on that woman right over there. Again, no one here gets to play innocent. No one here gets to be hero, including David. Again, I feel like what we watch him do at this point is enjoy realizing there's a fun side to sadism like clockwork orange or like last house on the left it's always interesting when the good people quote unquote suddenly realize the fun of being bad and that's what we're watching the moral rot and fall of him (sighs) what does that sound mean i'm so curious (laughs) yeah (laughs) is it that or is it just the tale of a man who's pushed too far what i kept coming back to and yes This came out eight years later, and maybe the song is even somewhat based on this movie, but Kenny Rogers, Coward of the County. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That did not make it into my notes. (laughs) I wasn't thinking about it, ever. But it's all about a guy who turns the other cheek because his dad got in fights and died in jail, and so this guy is considered a coward by everyone in town, and no matter what they do, they push him and they push him and they push him, and he will not fight back. Then they gang rape his wife. Yes, that's in a Kenny Rogers song. They gang rape his wife, and then he goes and kicks all their asses. But that's not why David has changed. He doesn't even know. No, no, it's I know, and I forgot that coming back. I think this is an old story. What pushes someone to violence? Like, High Noon, you could cite that. Like, pacifist, that's going to have to pick up the gun by the end. Like, that. what gets you to that point, though? What gets you to go against those ideals? Like, this mathematician looks, there's a glimmer in his eye when he, he comes with the idea to heat up some oil. Like, it seems like he's very excited about that when this is someone that hasn't wanted to confront anyone at any point in this film until now. But is it that... He's just been pushed too far. I mean, you guys seem to think that, like, it's this moment of him unleashing the inner beast. But what would cause him to do that? 
I think what this film is saying is that is human nature. You don't have someone be a mathematician that wants to sit in an office all day looking at a chalkboard turn violent. You you, you could have anyone turn violent. It, it's who you choose to do that. And so, yeah, to me, I think this film is saying that violence is nature. So it doesn't matter high up you are or how low you are. You're at some point going to turn to violence. I, I think that is the viewpoint of either Peckinpah or or just how this final film came about. Violence is our nature and, and that's where we're all going to end up. Well, here's the way I look at it, because I agree with you. What is the straw? What? Where does David break? It's difficult to name exactly the point. When they first come pounding on his door, after he's run over Henry and brought him into the house, and his wife is naturally flipping out, but he doesn't know it's because she's been assaulted, and this is all very triggering, he is trying to see their side. He's like, I know you guys must be upset, but you need to just go see Janice, and, you know, they break a few windows. He's not really triggered by all of that. I really think it's two things. One, he likes the abstract. He likes the mathematics of it. It's the fact that it is a stranger. The fact that in the end, like, it isn't his cause or a cause that he knows. He really likes to count, like, how many he's going to have to go against. Yeah. It makes it easy for him to turn this person into a beacon of innocence. How dare you try and kill this innocent man that I know nothing about? If I knew anything about him, I wouldn't be able to defend him. Because I don't, I can. Yeah, that's what I found interesting. There's no talk of justice. Hey, you, you know, he says, Yes, wait till the major gets here. But it's not like, hey, this man deserves a, a trial. And, and, you know, yeah, they, he tells him to go find Janice. But it never feels like it is there to protect Henry. It's almost like, okay, this is when I get my chance to stand up against these guys. And, and this is the, you know, where I'm going to take that stance finally. Yeah, the fact that it's over Henry is so odd. That's the irony, yeah. Yeah, but the, also what makes it so interesting is the fact that he couldn't do it for his wife. He couldn't even do it for himself, but he could do it for this principle, this abstractness that he doesn't even know and who is guilty of what they want to kill him for. The ironies are thick. Does anybody know what happened to Janice for the rest of this movie? No, they, they never figure it out. Yeah, okay, I didn't think so. No. And in the book, the Janice character lives. So they added that extra irony is in the end, it was all for naught. But yeah, here he is very guilty of what they should kill him for. And I don't think, I don't know, it'd be curious to know if the major showed up and said, yeah, we found Janice's body, what David would do. But because he never knows Henry's capabilities, it's just this abstract thing that he can defend like a math problem. And then, of course, when the major is killed, the reason why he really is able to go savage is because he knows there's no way other than that now, that these people are not going to stop. They've gone too far, and they will not only kill Henry, they'll kill them all. It's it's eye for eye. Yeah, I mean, I do think part of it is this is the first time David's been fighting for a life. I do think he knows they're going to kill Henry. And himself, and her. I mean, again, once... The major is dead. Yeah, once the major's dead, then David screwed. <laughs> the law, yeah. There's no law anymore. The man that keeps the law is like been gunned down in a skirmish with Tom. And now, you know, Tom, you can see it on Tom. He didn't mean to do that. It's lots of people. Charlie was talking about going home. Lots of people were making, edging closer to making the quote unquote right decision. And now there's no way forward other than fight to the death, right? There's just no way we can go home now. Like it's, we're in it too far and we just need to, to kill everyone inside, which we've secretly wanted to do anyway, because we hate each other. And, and all of that civility has been stripped away. Yeah, I do think it's interesting 
interesting that this is an American in the UK and you think of the UK and the US as these, you know, major Western powers, but even they can't get along in this film. Yeah. The fact that it is UK makes this movie very, very unique because again, some people talk about this in terms of just being a Western. If these were Indians trying to get into the Alamo, we'd have an entirely different feeling about all of it. But because they are, yeah, English society is supposed to be so proper and here they are being so savage and we have Chris wearing like a rat nose and doing that giggle and trying to get in the window. Ugh. That laugh. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, masks are important in home invasions. And this is sort of the, the beginnings of it. He's just got, you know, he's the rat man. So all he's got is a little nose, but it's enough. He's gross. It was making me think droogs. And again, like you said, same year. Yeah. So it's not a homage. It's just a cultural touch point of the time. But yeah, I was, I was thinking the droogs with their big noses on their masks. I believe he's the one that killed the cat. Ultimately, if he can kill the rats, he can kill the cat. Yeah, those cats are going to put him out of business. They get rid of <laughs> yeah, all the rats. Right, right. There is that. There is a logic to it, quite frankly. Some commentary on capitalism in this film. Yeah, perhaps. But yeah, all right. So now we just have, yeah, people compromising all of their values. Amy, at one point, it looks like she might even open the door for Charlie. You know, like it. she might flip there. But like when she opens it, Tom's there with the shotgun. And so we're never quite quite sure where she wants to go. She's caught in the middle. That's what makes her more interesting, frankly. I don't love any of these people, so where do I go? Yeah, we'll see Charlie come in and he'll, again, I think his allegiance is to Amy, so he's going to take care of Norman, who's trying to assault her again. And again, those real weird alliances going on that are always shifting depending on on who you really like, I think, in this film. like So Charlie's going to protect Amy, but what's telling to me is when Charlie gets in a scuffle with David, Amy, she gives a warning to Charlie. She goes, no, Charlie, like, just try to warn him about the man trap about to come down on him. Yes, I agree. There's something in the editing it goes by really fast but there are times where you can see amy rooting for charlie and sometimes rooting for david and we've also seen david grab her by the hair slap her around say i'll kill you if you don't do this he's starting to look more and more like a rapist not a rapist but an abusive husband i mean yeah well like the rapist like charlie was when he raped amy same behavior same shots sometimes they're filming it exactly the same way and so yes charlie actually turns against one of his own amy ends up deciding that she will at least spare david of ridaway the the final baddie i thought that tom was dead but truthfully i don't know if we ever saw the body we know he shot his foot off i assume he bled out but I don't know, maybe sequel? Yeah, well, we know there's not going to be a sequel all these many years later. Never say never, CGI. <laughs> I'd love to see, you know, a crossover, Straw Dogs and Meet the Fockers. We find out Mr. Fokker was this guy. <laughs> oh, jeez. But yet David, ever the mathematician, he's like counting up the bodies, like, I got them all. And I do think it's interesting. He's like, Jesus, I got them all. It does feel like, again, getting back to that religious conversation he had earlier. But no, he didn't get them all. Because is is the one that attacks him at the end, is this the one that he strapped to the window? No. And then got cut free? Okay, this is a different one. No, that was Norman. Ridaway has always been in the background. He was the one you'd least likely to pay attention to. He didn't even work on the roof. He just picked him up. He was the guy that drove the truck. And at one point tried to flag the guy so that he, you know, David almost drove into a tractor because of him. But overall, 
he was kind of peripheral. And it's funny that he's the the big bad, the final baddie here. He's like stepping on David's back on the stairs, like breaking it. And look, my reading is Amy's really hesitating to pull that trigger. Like she's like, mm, maybe I don't need David here. She is. Mm-hmm. Either that or is it that she's scared of killing someone herself? Everybody else has embraced violence, but she has not yet. She didn't have to do anything. I mean, even when Henry went after her, David came and saved her. She hasn't had to actually make the choice to hurt someone until this moment. Yeah, to think in Freudian sexual imagery, David has used the trap, which kind of Looks like a vagina, and she's the one with the phallus. She's the one having to become the man. He became the woman, flipping of the roles. But he also had the hot oil, which I thought was ingenious. I love the boiling oil idea. (laughs) I later found out that this was actually an inspiration for part of Home Alone. Sure. Uh, You can see it now, right? (laughs) Like a little less, you know, savage in the Macaulay version. But yeah, some of the pranks kind of have that Home Alone quality. Thank God I'm not laughing. I can honestly say I'm not enjoying it in the same way. I just can't wait till we reach the Home Alone section of our Home Invasion series. <laughs> we almost did it. Maybe we will. Who knows? I'm waiting for that sixth movie is the problem. Yeah, I, I'm not laughing or getting thrills off of this you know, revenge, getting back at these awful guys. And I feel like after Amy shoots Ridaway, like there's a real look of contempt on Dustin Hoffman's face. Like, why'd you take so long? Like, did you really want to shoot me? Like, I feel like even though she saved him, th- this marriage is over at this point. Like he, th- there's not an embrace. Uh, th- just th- that look on his face. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it, it feels like what took you so long, woman? Oh yeah, this is over between them, I think. And he didn't listen to her. He slapped her around. She didn't shoot fast enough i can't see this having a happy ending the happiest ending is the fact that they get out of this marriage yeah and usually in a hollywood film you save each other yay you know the the whole you know the ending of speed these intense situations make you fall in love and like that is what we typically see in action films and adventure films here no you participate in violence it destroys your marriage i mean he leaves her there he's gonna take henry back to town he drives off with henry screw her yeah, with the metaphorical line that he they can't find home, they don't know where they're going, their taillights heading into darkness. Certainly, there's metaphor in that, yes. Believe it or not, this is the happy ending, though. This is a happy ending? <laughs> the original ending was bleaker. It was bleaker. <laughs> so what would have happened was they killed everyone just as you saw, and they thought it was all over, and they were going to the front door, and here comes Bobby and all the children of the village to lynch them. And Wild Bunch ends in a famous freeze frame right before major characters characters die this would also be the same freeze frame and you wouldn't know whether dustin and susan george were going to be the next bodies to fall this one at least i think it's right to center on the message that america has lost its place in the world you know we thought we're the cowboy dustin hoffman is the intellectual that now is the violent sadist fighting foreign lands for unjust causes it brings us back to vietnam it brings us back to the violence of the day it's probably better than you know having children of the corn but is this movie better than children of the corn yes jacob stewart do you recommend straw dogs Jacob. Yeah, obviously this is better than Children of the Corn, but no, what draws me to this film, and and again, it's a hard one to watch. It's one I watched once and never planned on watching again because, yeah, I have a small category of films. I think we all do, like, good films, but too intense. Like, don't want to go through that again. But I'm glad I did because, yeah, the first time I watched it, I'm expecting that home invasion story. That's that's all I really knew about it, and there's some tough rape scenes, and but, you know, all the character work, okay, let's get to the home invasion. Like, that's that was kind of my mind 
mindset. Watching it this time, I, I found it, it, you know, it, it's three quarters interesting character studies to me. And then, yeah, it erupts in violence. And sure, this is a Rorschach test. Like, it probably says more about me than this movie is saying that, yeah, I, I read into this film that this is about the fragile nature of humanity, how quick we are to go to violence. And it doesn't matter how much you understand about computers or radiation or even God, violence is our nature. And that's that's the dark path for civilization. But th- th- I think this film does a really good job at making that point. And art doesn't always like to give us comforting answers. Like, that. that's something I found fascinating in all kinds of art is, yeah, sometimes I really like something, even though it's got a really dark, uncomfortable message that doesn't, you know, send me off to bed with sweet dreams. Like, this film is not going to do that for you. But I think it's important still, like, again, because of the way it goes about showing everyone collapsing into the same fault of, of violence. It's got a very dark message, but I peck and paw. I, I like the way this is shot. I like the way, you know, yes, it's rough because it's the 70s, but I like how chaotic it gets when after the rape scene and we get in all the PTSD and flashbacks and just the, yeah, these screechings and, and everything going on. It feels like that oil is boiling and just getting ready to explode. And so, yeah, I, I think this is a great film and you should watch it at least once. Recommend. Stewart. Yeah, you know, when Hoffman is asked about the film, he always asks people to think of it in terms of a classic Western. That's what Peckinpah made. He just transplanted that to the UK. Don't call it a spaghetti Western. Maybe call it a bangers and mash Western. But that's what this thing is. (laughs) When Susan George gets asked about this film, she describes it as a drama, as a love story. You're watching two people try and work their relationship out. I would also throw out that this is a horror movie in which the monsters come from outside and within. And what's so great about Straw Dogs is it works equally well on all three levels. For If you look at it in all three genres, deconstructed as a marriage in decline, deconstructed as the mythic American lawman riding into town, imposing his moral code, uh, deconstructed as the American psyche at a time when we were watching TV and feeling really bad about our valor with Vietnam War. I think that this movie spins all of that together in one nasty little package That leaves a real big welt on my mind, on my eyes. It is still shocking. And shocking both in in its visceral graphic way and shocking also to see a civilized mathematician lose it. You know, I feel like we can get desensitized with Purge. It's just assumed, oh yeah, people will channel their inner psychopath and, you know, they'll just go crazy. We accept that about people in these kinds of movies now. But here... We feel that as a tragedy. We feel that an intellectual losing his moral compass is really hard to watch. It's striking. It's stirring. It's haunt. It's a horror movie. It's a drama. It's a home invasion. And a Western too, I suppose. You know, in a weird way, you could see this as, yeah, a lawman that didn't understand the town that he rode into, but thought that he knew how things should be. That's a very classic uh, scenario you'd see in a lot of Westerns. I can see why people wouldn't want to see this. I'm not going to tell you you have to. It's really hard to watch what Susan George, the actress, goes through, what her character goes through. But again, I'm going to assert, watch it at least with the perspective that she's just as important as David, and maybe you will find her more interesting, less of a token victim. It's To me, it's not what you implied, Arnie, that she's a one-dimensional object here to be destroyed. She is the soul of this movie. She's the reason I watch it again. And so, yeah, you know, I've gotten to a place now where... 
I don't really go back to Clockwork Orange. That's one I've seen so often. I like, I really can't do it anymore. And I never liked Last House on the Left. But this one, Straw Dogs, it continues to expand in its readings. It continues to enrage and captivate me. It continues to draw me in. It is a very strong recommend. And I was on the fence with this one because we're watching it as a lead-in to home invasion films. The home invasion's the climax of the film, but does that classify as a home invasion film? Again, I mentioned Home Alone. You mentioned the first, The Purge. Home Alone is only like one-fourth a home invasion movie. Is it? Yes. It really is a coming-of-age film. Learning to love your family. Yeah, like 90 minutes of that has no crooks. I remember the crooks early on, but I haven't seen that film in a decade. Okay. I mean, they're introduced early on, but they don't attack the house to the end. This movie is a home invasion movie because it's always about what is defining home. (laughs) Symbolic home invasion does not count. Mm, I mean, it's a part of it. I don't know that I would be as into this movie if you cut to the quick and showed the end if I hadn't had the buildup. I don't think I would have. It requires the journey. Yeah, I find all the buildup interesting. And I actually find that when the home invasion stuff begins, it's over too soon for all the buildup we had. There's a lot of buildup. And unfortunately, I've really struggled to see your way on this, Stuart. I've really re-evaluated my viewing of Straw Dogs from when I watched it a couple nights ago and tried to see Amy as a central or even more important character. And I just can't do it. Maybe it's the performance. Maybe it's the writing, but... It's not the performance. Susan George is great. I found her very off-putting, but I guess it could be the character I wasn't liking, and she was doing very well in being an off-putting character. Yeah, let me agree with that. In case you think that I'm saying somebody here is a hero, nobody is likable. She is not likable. No, she's siding with her rapist. This is all kinds of icky. I found Dustin Hoffman to be a very sympathetic character. When he's beating his wife? Mm, Look deeper. He was a bit harsh, but when he was yelling at her before the invasion, beating his wife during the invasion, not exactly the right tone, but also you have murderers coming in. It was the 70s. It was more okay to slap a hysterical woman to get her out of the hysteria. But what kept hitting me is I'm like right on that fence. I mean, there's good things in this movie. I felt like it was too slow, but... I did come back to Last House on the Left. And I'm like, I recommended Last House on the Left. And I can't say this is worse than Last House on the Left, except for the pacing. Thank you. Right. Yeah, I agree. That Last House on the Left, by being more juvenile, might be more air quotes fun. It just got to the meat quicker. It was less air quotes boring. <laughs> But I don't think it was necessarily fun. And then the revenge on the killers was more fun than the brief oil potsis interruptus we get here. Even the use of the man trap over somebody's head, which was coming a mile away, wasn't as enjoyable as it could have been made in the ghoulish hands of a craven. Yeah, but and, and let's underline that. Peck and Paul doesn't want you to enjoy the violence. You are never to cheer when someone dies. Yes. So I'm eking it over to Week Recommend. I mean, it definitely has positive aspects. And I'm not just doing it because of apples and oranges comparisons between two movies. 
I think Dustin Hoffman's really good in this. I do think that there are relatable positions, and I like the characterization of the townies. They're a fun group of stereotypes to watch. You know, and I don't mean like fun as in rapist, but just, you know, especially Tom in the early scenes. You can get that he's dangerous, but it's a fun performance to watch. But classic that everybody has to watch. Man. But is it better than Children of the Corn? Yeah, it's better than Children of the Corn. But <laughs> classic that everybody has to watch. Children of the Corn isn't, and I don't think this is either. Maybe you can just get away with watching the remake. We'll have to find that out next week because, yes, somebody went and did a remake. Is this such an untouchable classic that it should never be remade? I think it could be improved upon in a remake. It does feel like it's very part of its time, watching it again this time. Not that there's universal things that you could grasp onto as well, but I think part of its strong suit is that, yes, it, it very much is a reaction to 1971 when it was coming out and what was going on around the world. The litmus test for me was when we covered Banchurian Candidate. We can have two good films. There's room. Yeah. They're never, because you made a classic, doesn't mean that someone can't find a new way in. So I'm sort of hopeful. I'd feel better if it had a better cast, but hey. I actually am looking forward to the cast. There's a lot of people I like in this cast you don't want the cast of superman returns yeah it's superman returns kate bosworth and james marsden oh ouch i forgot marsden was in that movie i try to forget that movie so okay good point he was a cucked husband in that and i guess he'll be a cucked husband in straw dogs yeah Oof. we'll see if they're they can measure up i don't he's not my idea of dustin hoffman but you know i'm open to it believe it or not even though i love this movie i'm not ready to, to hate on it but if you're in the mood for more home invasion films, join us this Friday. Don't be a stranger as we review The Strangers. Yes, we are starting for Silver Level Fall. Can't believe it's fall already. But new classics, things that have taken the straw dog formula and in the last 15 years done new creative things and gotten big box office. We found... Five movies, really more like three movies, and two of them have sequels. <laughs> Strangers is sort of the kickoff to what I would call the the new wave of home invasion movies. And I saw it back in the day. I can't wait to talk about it this Friday. That's right. It is the kickoff of our fall donation series. So today, the day we're releasing this, you have only one day left. Tomorrow, Wednesday, August 18th, is the last day to donate for our spring-summer donation series, if you want to get all those reviews from Dirty Harry to all of the David Fincher stuff we did, including the entire Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series and Gone Girl and Seven, and then our platinum level was the White House Invasion films. Oh, man, this feels like years it ago. <laughs> Wow, that's part of it. We're still doing this donation series? <laughs> yeah, they've become half a year affairs, but that <laughs> half a year is ending. Fall is beginning. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate to get your last minute pledge in and get well over 20 bonus shows or more, depending which level you do go to. And then, yes, starting Thursday, our fall donation series kicks off where you can get so many bonus shows because, as Stuart said, our silver level is going to be Home Invasion with The Strangers, The Strangers 2, You're Next, Don't Breathe, and Don't Breathe 2. Our gold level 
is our second most requested retrospective series of all time, I do believe. It's not Harry Potter. Harry Potter's number one. But number two, the one people... Media cop. (laughs) (laughs) Paranormal activity. Yep. Uh, It's kind of a theme with uh, invading of homes. It's a different way of thinking about invading homes. It's a classic haunted house story told in a new wave found footage format. I have only seen the first one, and people tell me that the mythology gets denser and more interesting. And so I think we're all going to be newbies going into the what should be seven films. Even though six have been released at this time, there is the promise of a seventh film. It has been shot, completed. Jason Blum says it's ready to come out whenever, maybe next March when we'll be releasing the, the show or maybe even this October Halloween season. Kind of depends on, well, there's a lot of shuffling in theatrical release right now. Yeah, so you will get... Seven paranormal activity reviews if you donate, but definitely six during this donation drive and the seventh when it comes out. If you go platinum with us, then you get a long promised trilogy of reviews. COVID put an 18 month delay on us reviewing A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place Part 2. But now those are both out. We're going to be reviewing those as well as the Netflix ripoff or parent or however you want to look at it bird box the one that inspired all the mutant ninja turtle memes (laughs) i don't know why that would be she got a blue bandana like leonardo (laughs) okay (laughs) but yeah we'll be that's our platinum series long wanted to do that also kind of a home invasion at least that first quiet place movie so again if uh, we all have to be quarantined again and we're not going to the movie theater, what better way to be terrorized than by our own houses? I'm looking forward to it. And we are bringing back other levels with just the optimism we are going to theaters. Okay. Candyman yes. is coming out in just a couple of weeks, and I think it will. And so if you donated way back in spring of 2020 for that donation series, you will get that review but you can donate again now if you missed out last spring and get all four Candyman reviews. And then we're going to bring back the Ghostbusters retrospective series from 2016 with the optimism that Ghostbusters Afterlife will live in November. Yep. And bring back our Tom Cruise series again. It seems to be the most available series we've done. I think it's been like two years straight. If you go our top donation level, you can get Tom Cruise because someday Top Gun 2 will take off and it's (laughs) currently scheduled for November. So a lot of new shows planned. And again, if the movie does change dates, if you donate for these retrospectives, you will get that show whenever the movie is released. If you donated for Tom Cruise back in the spring, if you donated for Candyman back in spring 2020, you will get these shows just as part of the promised donation drive for them. So if you donate now, these, you will get these reviews when those movies come out. And... You're going to get something else from now playing, thanks to some friends. We're giving away some more digital download movies to win a copy of Richard Dreyfuss's new movie, Crime Story. It sounds really good to me because it's apparently like John Wick or Taken, only instead of Keanu or Liam. Richard Dreyfuss? Wow. It's Richard Dreyfuss. And you know what? I saw that film Nobody where Bob Odenkirk did that and nobody was 
really kind of good. So I'm looking forward to more of those kinds of films. Uh, if Dreyfus can do the stunts, it'll be great. You're right. If Richard Dreyfus can do the kung fu, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> the giveaway for Crime Story is happening now. And if you're in our Facebook group, you're already entered as well as if you are a subscriber to our Now Playing In Focus newsletter. Those are the two ways to enter. If you subscribe to our newsletter, the sign-up's on our homepage. Jason puts out weekly content contributed to by everybody at Now Playing, both in front of the mic and behind. And you could just get more news and reviews from us at Now Playing by signing up for this Now Playing In Focus newsletter. And... If you join our Facebook group, which I'm going to be 100% honest, I'm not just like pimping us. This is the best Facebook group I've ever been in. Most of them are train wrecks. I love the people in this group. It's a lot of very friendly, very civil conversations about movies, plus some funny memes from time to time. Or a lot of memes when Fast 9 comes out. (laughs) So you can join that group. You're entered to win a second time. And we will announce the winners for Crime Story on August 22nd. So please join us on Facebook. Great conversations. Join us on the newsletter. Really great content there. And join us this Friday with our donation drive for The Strangers. A lot of new, exciting content for you. And Stuart has the schedule set into 2023 in certain places. That's just all the movies from 2020 that keep getting pushed, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of that is just a cut and paste job, Arnie. But yeah, we have the schedule. We're always updating. If you want to hear us get to a lot of new stuff coming up, including, yes, that number one most requested retrospective series, hopefully you can support us now so we can keep going and now playing on and on. Thank you for your support. Thank you for joining us for this Totally Free Tuesday show. Again, it's donors that allow us to do a new free show every single Tuesday without fail for over a decade. Crazy. 520 some odd weeks. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now, come on, Henry, we're going home. Okay, you've had your fun. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. It's been a good day. We've got a lot accomplished. We hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah, that was real good. Real good. Thank you. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. That would be a terrific help. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Come on, catch up! On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You ever do horror films like that movie Saw or action film? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. You've had your fun. Pay the man and leave. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Oh, we can take care of our own here. Usually do.
You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. Yes? How much? Oh, reasonable. And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. You want to stay here? This is what we do on Friday nights. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Where are you going? David? Where are you going? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Son of a bitch got some man in him after all. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's a good man. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Come on, lads. Work to be done. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. Run away with words. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just a little redneck wisdom for you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. We're all in it now. Accessories we are. That's the law. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I don't know my way home. That's okay. I don't either. But is this movie better than Children of the Corn? Yes. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Straw Dogs? Jacob. That should be our new recommendation system. Is it better than Children of the Corn? <laughs> I'd like so many more movies. Yes. <laughs> I know. Be so many recommends.